And we jump right in now with the federal Conservative Party leadership race. My guest is Pierre Polyev, Conservative MP. He is seeking the leadership of the party, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Pierre Polyev, thanks for, uh, for coming on today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks a lot. Let's jump right into this affordable housing issue, which has become a key part of your campaign now, especially here in Vancouver. You've made a new policy announcement on this this morning. Tell me how this would work now. Thank you very much for the invite. First of all, let's understand why house prices are out of control. We have the second worst housing bubble in the world, according to Bloomberg. Vancouver's the third most overpriced uh, housing market on earth. Toronto is the 10th. Uh, and house prices have doubled under Justin Trudeau from $434,000 for the typical home to $874,000, 100% increase in just seven years. Why is it happening? The federal government is printing money like crazy. They've pumped that new cash into the financial and mortgage market. The wealthy have borrowed it out to bid up house prices and leave working class people priced out of the market. But secondly, local government gatekeepers impose enormous regulatory bureaucracy preventing new construction of affordable housing. In Vancouver, the cost of municipal and provincial bureaucracy uh, in the form of fees, delays, consulting charges, development charges and taxes is $644,000 for every single unit of housing in the city. So as Prime Minister... I, I'm putting, I will have a plan to, one, stop the money printing. The government shouldn't be printing cash. We should be protecting the value of our money by growing the money supply only in, in accordance with the output of the economy. But two, I'm going to remove the, the local government gatekeepers, and here's how I'm going to do it. Um, big cities with more than, more than 500,000 people and overpriced real estate will have to increase the amount of home building they allow to happen by 15% every single year, or they will lose some of their federal infrastructure transfers that they get from the federal government. Um, and so you have to increase by 15% a year. And if you miss uh, that target, you, you're, you're, the big city politician will lose a similar amount of infrastructure transfer. Second, I'm going to give bonuses to municipalities that do get out of the way and let builders build. So for every additional housing built, uh, housing unit built above the, the previous year's construction, uh, that uh, municipality will get ten grand. So if they um, if they build uh, an extra, um, say a hundred units over what they did the previous year, they'll get an extra million dollars of infrastructure money from the federal government. This okay. way, this way, we actually incentivize more faster building of affordable housing. Okay, so what kind of federal infrastructure funding are we talking about here? Are you talking about billions of dollars in transfers that go every year to municipalities for things like what public transit? So if, if Vancouver doesn't build these homes, you would you would cut transit funding in the city? Is that what it boils down to effectively? No, so there's two funds uh, at play here. One's the community building fund and the other is the, gas, uh, the, the GST rebate. And okay. Vancouver gets both of those. And uh, Vancouver... Uh, would be the Vancouver City Hall would be required to get out of the way and let builders build uh, it, in order to uh, increase the home building by 15% year after year. And if they don't, then they yeah. would be, I would hold back the uh, community building fund and just some, a share of it in, in proportion to, their, to the right. number of houses they failed to build. 
Speaking of Pierre Polyev, how would this make housing more affordable for people in Vancouver? I mean, you said yourself during your recent visit here that even if you, you densify and build more homes on, let, let's say, a single family lot, the price of housing would still be exorbitant and beyond the reach of most people. Like, do you expect this to drive housing prices down? Well, it will definitely moderate them because the incentive I'm putting in place will will uh, spark 500,000 new builds uh, over the next, if it were implemented now, over the next four years. That's a di- on, a, on top of existing uh, uh, projections for construction. It's very simple. Price is set by supply and demand. If you increase supply, you moderate the price. Uh, and that's why, that's my plan. Incentivize municipalities to get the gatekeepers out of the way so builders can build and buyers can yeah. buy. That's the only way we're going to do this. Listen, it is a supply problem in part because we know, we know that Canada has the lowest per capita number of housing units of any G7 country, even though we have the most land to build on. If so you, the problem is gatekeepers. Get them out of the way. Build houses now. If you bring in policies that drive down house prices, would that not erode the equity in the existing homes that are owned by people who own their own homes now? Like, what do you say to people who own their homes now, relying on the equity in that home for their retirement or to leave for their kids, if your goal is to drive prices down? Well, we need to, right now we have a housing bubble and it's not helping anyone. You're, you're not, you have the same walls, ceiling, floor, pipes today that you did seven years ago. It's just that on paper, it costs twice as much for the same thing. And this is a lot of, uh, I thought a lot of older people would be uh, objecting to my proposals for the reason you mentioned, but what I'm finding is that they're angry as well because they've got a 32 year old stuck living in the basement. He can't move out because he can't afford a home. And so now he's got to bring his future spouse to live in the basement as well. And the only way for them to ever get a house is for the parents then to take a loan against their property to buy their kids' property. This is insane. Okay. Okay. More land than any other country in the G7. It should be affordable to, 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 to buy a house. And my plan to stop printing money and start building houses will make it affordable. Justin Trudeau is also promising affordable housing, and he took a crack at you here during his recent visit to B.C. Let me play this short clip and get your thoughts. So this is Trudeau, I think, clearly talking about you here, and then I'll get your thoughts. Anyone promising a simple, easy fix to the housing crisis is trying to push something politically that isn't true. This is a complex situation. It's going to require many, many different measures. Okay, what do you say to him? He's got no credibility. House prices have doubled under Justin Trudeau. They're up 100% under his leadership. When I was the housing minister in this country seven years ago, the average house cost $434,000. It was affordable to afford to buy a home for the middle class family. Under Justin Trudeau, it's impossible. It's over a million dollars in Toronto and Vancouver because of his inflationary policies. Justin Inflation. Just inflation has hit our housing market. No one can believe a word he said. Yes, he spent $40 billion on housing, which is a lot of money for taxpayers to pay. But what are the results? He's doubled the house price. His policies have failed. We need a new prime minister who will stop printing money and start building houses. That's my plan. 
Pierre Pauly of your campaign is drawing a lot of attention. You're drawing big crowds wherever you go. Uh, I'm interested in some of the things that you've been saying. I noted that you seem to every day in your speeches, you say you want to make Canada the freest country in the world, which is interesting. Which country right right now would you say is the freest country? You know, I don't know which country uh, to which I would give that award, but it sure isn't Canada. Uh, we know that because people aren't don't have the freedom to buy a home. It's too expensive. Single mothers don't have the freedom to choose which food to feed their kids. Can't afford it. Uh, working class folks can't afford to fill their tanks with gas. So that re- restricts their freedom of mobility. And of course, governments of all levels have attacked the medical freedom of people by imposing mm-hmm. these unscientific uh, and unjust vaccine mandates that have deprived people of their jobs for, for a personal decision. I'm going to reverse that trend, get rid of the mandates, uh, going to uh, stop this just inflation, unleash uh, the free enterprise system so people can have big paychecks that buy homes, gas and food. And I'm going to get rid of the censorship online that Trudeau is trying to bring in. All of these practical steps will make Canada a freer place with the goal of putting people back in in charge of their lives. Uh, Pierre Polyev, we've got your opponent coming up later on the station today, Jean Charest. He will be a guest on the Jazz Joe Hall Show here this afternoon, and I know that he is going to be on the attack against you. He has already criticized your support of the trucker convoy that went to Ottawa. Let me play a short clip of him here and get your thoughts. So this is Charest here going after you, and I'll get your thoughts. The rule of law, very important issue in this leadership race because I have a competitor, uh, to name him, Mr. Podiev, who supported, as you know, the blockade. And if you want to be a leader in this country, and a legislator, you can't make laws and break laws. Jean Charest there running for the conservative leadership, and he's a guest on CKNW later today. Pierre Polyev, what do you say to him? Well, first of all, he's lying. I supported the law-abiding and peaceful truckers who were demonstrating for their freedom and for their livelihoods. For, for Charest to call these hardworking heroes that delivered our goods and services across borders, a bunch of criminals, makes him just like Justin Trudeau. Uh, It reminds me, uh, and and for him to talk about the rule of law is ironic, after the scandal-plagued liberal government that he led uh, that ended up under police investigation in Quebec, no one can trust anything he says about the rule of law. And finally, we can't have Jean Charest leading anything in a time of of record inflation. He raised the sales tax on Quebecers when he was the Liberal Premier in that province, making Quebec one of the most expensive places in Canada. We can't afford Charest so, and Trudeau. Their high taxes are hurting people. We need a low-tax, uh, inflation-fighting leader like me. Okay, last question for you. So when he says that you supported the blockade, I get he appears to be referring to... Yeah, so you, you I stated very the clearly that I simultaneously supported the yeah. peaceful and law-abiding uh, protesters who are defending their right to earn a living and make their own medical decisions, while at the same time I condemned any individuals who broke laws, blocked uh, critical infrastructure, or behaved badly. That was my comment before, during, and after. Sheree is trying to portray all of the protesters as criminals, which is uh, which is another example of a liberal attacking working class people in this country. So you didn't support the truckers blockading the streets of Ottawa for all that all those days. I, I supported the peaceful and law abiding truckers who were standing up for their freedom, who had lost their jobs because of an unscientific yeah. mandate. 
that Justin Trudeau imposed on them, even though they were the least likely people to spread a virus, given that they're in a truck by themselves all day long. And I will stand up for their freedom and for their jobs any day of the week, even while liberals like Jean Charest and Justin Trudeau attack our working class. Pierre Polyev, thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. All right, welcome back to the show. We started today's show talking about Metro Vancouver's unaffordable housing market. Now, you may have heard yesterday's show. We also talked about that issue. My guest yesterday was Jen Gerson, the journalist at theline.ca. And she thinks that this real estate market is rigged in favor of the baby boomers. As she says, the older, largely retired generation that bought houses back when they were actually affordable, and now they're sitting on a mountain of wealth. And she thinks all these politicians who are out there saying, promising to make housing more affordable, uh, they simply won't do anything to anger or annoy the homeowning class right now. Here's what she wrote in her article. She wrote, the boomer got his, and that's what matters. We have an entire government apparatus set up to protect that guy. The boomer with the money, the guy who votes. We talked about that in yesterday's show. Here's what she had to say to me. Have a listen. It's not my fault I bought a house 40 years ago and now I'm sitting on six figure, six and seven figure um, uh, uh, gains. Like, it's not my fault my kids can't buy my house, right? <laughs> but of course, that's, that's, that's the tragedy of the commons problem of housing is that it's not any individual person's fault. It's just what we did. Okay, she went on to make the case for a capital gains tax on homes that are owned by people who use the home as their principal residence. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Dylan Kruger, the counselor in Delta. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Counselor, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Dylan, you're a young guy. We've talked a lot about this home ownership uh quandary and challenge for young people trying to break into this market. What do you think about that argument that the system right now is somehow rigged in favor of the existing homeowners? What do you think of that? Well, there's no doubt that, I mean, anyone who's bought property over the last 20 years has benefited enormously. So I agree with Jen, certainly on that point. I I would point to the, the rationale for that, though, especially in Metro Vancouver, uh, that we put our neighborhoods into time capsules and we don't have nearly enough stock of housing on any other commodity, whether it was a, a grocery item or, or a car or, or any other product. Uh, when prices are escalating like that uh, in ways we haven't seen, 20 or 30% uh, increases every year, you think, gosh, we better start producing more of that product. Only when it comes to housing and housing in BC do we say, well, let's look at every option possible uh, except for actually building more housing. Yeah, so you see it more as a supply issue. We've got to build more stuff that people can afford to buy. Yeah, we don't need more taxes. We need more housing. Um, you know, I don't want to stoke intergenerational warfare here either. We've, we've added, think of all the taxes we've added over the last year, speculation taxes, foreign buyers taxes, empty homes taxes, school taxes. Um, and and the, the problem now is worse than it's ever been before. So we keep looking for this scapegoat. Uh, and, and really, we, when you look at the number of people that are coming into this province, that are coming into this country, the housing demand that is there today, uh, we don't have the housing stock. We're, municipalities aren't approving the new units of housing to deal with existing demand, let alone demand to come. She, uh, Jen Gerson on yesterday's show, Dylan, argued that the system is set up to protect those very house-rich homeowners 
She said that, for example, we've got the annual BC Homeowners Grant. Uh, seniors can defer their property taxes if they want. Uh, we, we have a capital gains tax exemption on the sale of your home if it's a principal residence. And she argues that it's not fair and that there should be a capital gains tax when you sell your house that you live in. Have a listen to what she said here yesterday on, on yesterday's show, and I'll get your thoughts. If you bought a house for $40,000 and you walk away 15 years later um, and you've made $150,000, everything beyond a certain amount should be taxed as an investment, which it is. Okay. Um, now, I don't, I don't think necessarily all of that should be taxed, but I mean, like, it, 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 when, it, when, when profits on housing start to become exorbitant, you should be disincentivizing speculation. Okay, and then she went on to say that she believed that should include your own home that you live in. Like, if a home is your, your principal residence, you should not have, that should not be a loophole in escaping a, a, a capital gains tax. What do you think of that? I just question, you know, what's the policy objective that we're trying to achieve? Is it a philosophical notion of fairness or is it addressing the housing crisis? You know, I'm sure we've all heard the stories. My parents just downsized their house and they, they sold their five-bedroom home that our family grew up in. Uh, and the money that they got from that house afforded them a very modest two-bedroom uh, condo building. So I don't think that everybody needs a place to live. I'm not seeing many people, unless they're planning on you know, living in a trailer for the rest of their lives, uh, having a big, bo- big boondoggle from their principal residences if they want to live in Metro Vancouver. The issue is we've got a very land-constrained, uh, supply-constrained market, and we have municipalities that have acted as gatekeepers that are spending more time uh, debating shadows and setbacks than working on approving new housing projects. Okay, speaking of, of gatekeepers, this is a, a term that's been popularized recently by Pierre Pauly of the Conservative MP who's running for the party leadership. And as it happened, he was a guest on the show today. He was my first guest today. And we talked about his plan for housing. And he said one of the things that he would do if he becomes prime minister is that he would effectively force the city of Vancouver to build more housing. And if they don't, he would cut federal infrastructure funding to the city. So his bottom line is you don't build enough housing. The federal government will penalize you by cutting transfer payments to the city of Vancouver. He singled out Vancouver here. Have a listen to what he had to say to me, Adele, and then I'll get your thoughts. So this is Pierre Pauliev speaking to me this morning. You have to increase by 15% a year. And if you miss uh, that target, the big city politician will lose a similar amount of infrastructure transfer. Second, I'm going to give bonuses to municipalities that do get out of the way and let builders build. Okay, so he says he's got a a stick and a carrot there. So he says if a city, a big city doesn't build enough housing, he'll hit you with a stick by cutting your transfer payments from the federal government. And if you do build lots of housing... Then you'd get you'd get the carrot. You'd have an incentive there. You'd get some extra money from the feds for doing that. What do you think of that idea? Uh, did you ever think you'd see this, uh, Mike? What did David Eby and Pierre Polyev have in common? Yeah. <laughs> You've got the, the left and the right seem to have finally started converging on this issue because they realized that, you know, we talked about baby boomers earlier. Millennials are now the largest voting bloc in Canada. Anyone who wants to win an election needs to appeal to millennials. Millennials care about affordability. Millennials care about getting into um, housing, safe and secure housing. So it's you, people have to start being relevant on this in, in senior levels of government. And absolutely, I think 
you know, we do these housing needs assessments every year as municipalities. We, we know where the gaps are. Um, we should be the ones that are putting policy in place. I think the municipality should be able to say where in our municipalities the housing should go, but we should not be able to arbitrarily stop projects because a neighbor comes out and complains about shading or setbacks or parking. There's a hierarchy of needs in our communities, and we're, we're in a housing crisis. We need to start acting like it, and if we're not ready to do that, then senior government needs to respond accordingly. Yeah, David Eby, the provincial housing minister, part of an NDP government. Yeah, it is interesting to see him uh, saying something similar, threatening to force municipalities effectively to build more housing by taking over provincial uh, housing approvals here. So that is interesting. My guest is Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger. Lots of calls here. Daryl in Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. My first question to the councillor is, can cities and municipalities put in bylaws or, or, or regulations that developers, once they buy land, must start development within a certain number of years. Secondly, I'm in Coquitlam. There's been land vacant. They knocked down houses. They've been vac- vacant for 10 years. Secondly, huh. Don Drummond from the TD Bank said, that you don't have to be a mathematician. We're bringing in 400,000 people. We are naturally growing as, as a country, and we only put up 243,000 housing units. That's a major problem. How can municipalities streamline and incentivize developers? Okay, thanks for the call. Dylan, your thoughts? Yeah, great question. I would say it's less about incentivizing uh, landowners. There are many, many landowners that are very keen to develop their properties. The biggest problem is the the backlog of hundreds of applications that are sitting on planners' desks uh, across Metro Vancouver right now. We've got to clear that backlog. We can do it a couple of different ways. One thing that we can do, the city of Edmonton just did this. Who thought the city of Edmonton would be more progressive than Metro Vancouver? They have pre-zoned their entire city to match their their official community plan. We go through a large planning exercise every couple of years to, to build these neighborhood plans. Let's cut out these redundant additional rezoning and public hearing processes, follow the plan, and pre-zone our cities. That's one thing we can do right away. Okay, so you pre-zone, so that what makes it quicker to get stuff so, approved? So, so, for example, let's say uh, the, the current zoning is for a one-story commercial building, but the yeah. official community plan is for a six-story mixed-use building. Rather than going through two years of a rezoning process and, the, and a second round of public consultation, even though the neighborhood plan already says, yes, six stories is allowed on this site, let's, let's just go straight to development permit. This, is, this matches the official community plan. Let's pre-zone today to incentivize developers and get council out of the way and let uh, builders do their jobs. Okay, Steve on the line in Delta. Hi, Steve, go ahead. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, that's a great idea. And in Vancouver, and throughout the lower mainland, we have what they call the Vancouver Special, right? Yeah. The house that, that, that's on every street. Not not my idea of great architecture, but hey, beauty's uh, in the eye of the beholder. But yeah, pre-planning that is a great idea. Uh, just getting back to, um, in regard to taxing, capital gains on real estate yeah the government isn't going to do it and and her words were were absolute this is the voting public these are the people that vote and i'm trying to remember back when brian moroney brought in the most unpopular gst i think it got bounced didn't he yeah well nobody likes paying taxes and yeah i i I would be surprised if any politician would summon the, the the determination to tax people's homes you know, whether it's a home equity tax or some kind of capital gains tax on a principal residence, I mean, I just don't see it happening. I mean, we continue to have people suggest it or argue it or make the case for it. But Dylan, do you ever do you ever see a politician having the political courage to do that? I don't. 
Uh, I don't, and, and I also don't know if it would achieve the desired result. I think it would be the latest in a long list of new taxes. We've tried new taxes. We're taxing housing more now uh, than ever before, and we haven't seen the intended result. Yeah. We, could look at, we could look at incentives for renters, though. We give a lot to, to property owners, but maybe we can look at more incentives for renters or for first-time buyers, but I don't see government actually How? seriously taking that proposal. How is increasing supply going to solve the problem, though? Because in this overheated market, if you just build more housing, wouldn't that just be more expensive housing? Like, how would it drive down costs? Well, it is supply and demand to a certain extent. Think about our region. We've got the mountains on one side, the ocean on the other, the border on the other. We have run out of, and then the agricultural land reserve uh, interspersed in between. We've run out of land to build housing. So when you have scarce supply of a product, uh, the demand is going to go up. Uh, and the, the vast majority of homes in our region uh, are one type of product as well, because we've zoned the majority of our region for single detached homes, which puts a real run up on prices for more modest and inexpensive forms of living, uh, like condos uh, and townhouses and duplexes and other sorts of housing. So by rezoning, by creating more supply, uh, we're going to increase that mix. And uh, look, m- maybe we're not going to see, uh, you know, I, I don't believe people that say we're going to see a massive bubble burst, but maybe we can stop seeing 20 to 30% increases year over year and start getting price increases that are more in line with, the, with, with income yeah. levels. Okay, Pete on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Pete, go ahead. Hi, um, Andy Ann basically said, I think, the most important words in housing, homes for whom? We had Vision Vancouver... Uh, the sort of party of uh, offshoring homes to foreign capital and then later global capital when they started doing taxes. Um, So just building more supply, you want more supply for foreign investment to do land banking here and domestic speculators. Like, isn't Pierre Polyevre a domestic speculator? And, And I know for sure that our last BC Liberals finance minister, Mike DeYoung, had eight properties. I mean, they call them eight property Mike. So now we're getting more Canadian domestic speculators to compete uh, as well as the foreign capital. So just building more homes, that will make politicians, civic, provincial, federal, uh, and from all parties who are funded by developers happy because they're going to get more money from developers. So I think we need to create homes and limits for you are living in there, you own you're living there. You're working in that in that community. Thank, thank you, Pete. Just got to step on you there in the interest of time. You got 30 seconds to respond there. Dylan, go ahead. Mike, I want to speak to this. So let, let's be very clear. Foreign ownership, is it a factor? Yes, it is almost 0% of the home purchases in BC today. Let's be careful also when we talk about speculation. If homes are being owned and rented out to British Columbians, that's a good thing. Our rental vacancy rate is less than 1%. We need okay. more supply, rental, and home ownership. Thank you, Dylan, for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you, Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger there. Thanks a lot for all your calls. Let's talk about the downtown east side now. This is a neighborhood with a lot of challenges, but there is a vibrant cultural and artistic community there, including downtown east side musicians set to release a new album now and two evenings of live music let's get the details now with my guest eris nix eris is the project coordinator for 100 block rock hi eris hi how are you doing i'm doing great thanks a lot for coming on 100 block rock that's 100 block you're talking about the 100 block of hastings street there right i am indeed 
the 100 block of Hastings, which absolutely rocks. <laughs> okay. Tell me about the project you're working on here. Uh, so we've taken, uh, you know, a collection of outsider musicians, artists, debutantes, you know, and ephemera from the downtown east side and uh, given them a platform, given them a voice, given them professional studio time, uh, put together an LP that's set to release tomorrow at the Redgate Review stage with live performances from many of the artists on the record. Uh, I think that a lot of people don't understand that downtown east side is a hub of culture and is it's you know, slowly getting crushed, a lot of these voices will be lost like uh, tears in the rain, if you will. How are they How are they getting crushed? Well, I mean, the, the neighborhood, it's becoming much more difficult and much more expensive to live in as property values increase. You know, a lot of the SROs where folks live are uh, shutting down. The Winters Hotel just uh, burnt down, unfortunately. So folks are getting, are getting pushed out of the neighborhood and kind of migrated around if you will and i think you know the condensed artistic culture that you see in the neighborhood is uh you know it's not going to be here in 10 years i i don't think so unfortunately so okay your project is called 100 block rock so is is this mostly rock music or you got hip-hop in there what what kind of music you got in there it's a compilation of all kinds of things. We got rock, we got hip hop, we got funk, we got soul, we got R and B. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I think the uh, the point is to really represent, create kind of a cultural monument to what exists down here uh, in the neighborhood right now. And I think it's important to preserve all these these voices because really, you know, the project's just it's been a labor of love, and it's really a beautiful thing. And it's it's amazing to hear, you know, folks who would otherwise not have the opportunity to produce their uh, music and their sound in such a professional way. Uh, speaking of Eris Nix, he's the project coordinator, 100 Block Rock in the downtown east side. So all the artists that will be featured on this LP, Eris, do they all they all live in the downtown east side or they work down there? No, it's a prerequisite that folks live in the uh, V6A postal code or have no fixed address. So these are, mm. you know, outsider musicians from the neighborhood, not your... Uh, standard phs heavy metal band that you might see at the rickshaw if you will yeah okay and where how were they able to come together to create this lp where, where did they get the studio time and that kind of thing well so there's a bunch of community partners that joined us kw studios which is in the bottom of the woodwards building chom studio which is on uh, cordova and we got a bunch of grant money this project's been funded by the city of vancouver and creative B- uh, bc and uh you know, we kind of just canvas the neighborhood. And if someone's playing saxophone on the corner or, you know, pots and pans with spoons and spatulas, they got a, they got a contract with us. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. And the, uh, the album is coming out on, is this a CD or no, you're going old school, right? Is it vinyl, vinyl record? This is, this is a full vinyl record and it'll wow. be available uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow is the release show at Redgate uh, Art Society, which is on 4th and Main. Uh, and after that, it will be available for sale online. If you just Google 100 Block Rock, uh, it should be one of the first results that uh, pops up for folks. So, And all the, I must add, all the funds go back to allowing us to continue to run the project. It's a totally non, not-for-profit project, and uh, you know, it's about pre- preserving the voices in this community. Oh, okay, so any funds raised go back into what you do, another album? Yeah, that's a plan. Good things come in threes, and uh, this is the second one. So okay, waiting, this, waiting on that triplet. 
Yeah. Okay. Cool. And you've got you mentioned there's there'll be two live performances. So the first one is tomorrow night. Then there's another one Saturday. This Saturday. Okay. At the Red Gates Red Gate Arts Society, 1965 Main Street. Right. That is correct, and uh, okay. anyone is free to come. And you know, all the profits from the door there also go back to helping pay the artists and continuing to run the project. So we're hoping we get a lot of support from the community. What will people hear down there if they come down to the show? A lot of fantastic outsider musicians that they would otherwise not have the opportunity to hear. You know, rock and roll, soul, funk, pop, reggae. We got it all. So. Really looking forward to the the melange we got going. Do you think there is um, a perception out there about the neighborhood that maybe people don't realize there's there's an artistic scene there or there's a music scene there? Well, I think, you know, with with suffering comes culture, right? And the downtown east side is a vibrant community, and there's a lot of trauma down here as well. But I think, you know, all the pressure and complications of people's lives really produce some of the best art I've ever experienced, which is why I'm so delighted to have been able to participate in this project. Right. You're, you're, are you a musician yourself? No, you're a DJ, right? I mean, I, uh, I do it all. I do play music. Yes, but it's mostly, it's mostly music. People don't want to listen to Let's okay. Put it that way. Okay. Well, Eris, it's a little, little softer. Good luck with it, man. Thank you very much for coming on today. I hope it's a big success for you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You take care now. You 